Letter 27 My dear Wormwood, you seem to be doing very little good at present. The use of his love to distract his mind from the enemy is, of course, obvious, but you reveal what poor use you are making of it when you say that the whole question of distraction in the wandering mind has now become one of the chief subjects of his prayer. That means you have largely failed. When this or any other distraction crosses his mind, you ought to encourage him to thrust it away by sheer willpower and to try to continue the normal prayer as if nothing had happened. Once he accepts the distraction as his present problem and lays that before the enemy and makes it the main theme of his prayers and his endeavors, then so far from doing good, you have done harm. Anything, even a sin, which has the total effect of moving him close up to the enemy, makes against us in the long run. A promising line is the following. Now that he is in love, a new idea of earthly happiness has arisen in his mind, and hence a new urgency in his purely petitionary prayers about this war and other such matters. Now is the time for raising intellectual difficulties about prayer of that sort. False spirituality is always to be encouraged. On the seemingly pious ground that praise and communion with God is the true prayer, humans can often be lured into direct disobedience to the enemy who, in his usual flat, commonplace, uninteresting way, has definitely told them to pray for their daily bread and the recovery of their sick. You will, of course, conceal from him the fact that the prayer for daily bread, interpreted in a spiritual sense, is really just as crudely petitionary as it is in any other sense. But since your patient has contracted the terrible habit of obedience, he will probably continue such crude prayers whatever you do. But you can worry him with the haunting suspicion that the practice is absurd and can have no objective result. Don't forget to use the heads-I-win-tails-you-lose argument. If the thing he prays for doesn't happen, then that is one more proof that petitionary prayers don't work. If it does happen, he will of course be able to see some of the physical causes which led up to it, and therefore it would have happened anyway. And thus a granted prayer becomes just as good a proof as a denied one that prayers are ineffective. You, being a spirit, will find it difficult to understand how he gets into this confusion. But you must remember that he takes time for an ultimate reality. He supposes that the enemy, like himself, sees some things as present, remembers others as past, and anticipates others as future. Or even if he believes that the enemy does not see things that way, yet in his heart of hearts, he regards this as a peculiarity of the enemy's mode of perception. He doesn't really think, though he would say he did, that things as the enemy sees them are things as they are. If you tried to explain to him that men's prayers today are one of the innumerable coordinates with which the enemy harmonizes the weather of tomorrow, he would reply that then the enemy always knew men were going to make those prayers, and if so, they did not pray freely, but were predestined to do so. And he would add that the weather on a given day can be traced back through its causes to the original creation of matter itself, so that the whole thing, both on the human and on the material side, is given from the word go. What he ought to say, of course, is obvious to us. That the problem of adapting the particular weather to the particular prayers is merely the appearance, at two points in his temporal mode of perception, of the total problem of adapting the whole spiritual universe to the whole corporeal universe. That creation in its entirety operates at every point of space and time, or rather that their kind of consciousness forces them to encounter the whole self-consistent creative act as a series of successive events. Why that creative act leaves room for their free will is the problem of problems, the secret behind the enemy's nonsense about love. How it does so is no problem at all, for the enemy does not foresee the humans making their free contributions in a future, but sees them doing so in his unbounded now. And obviously to watch a man doing something is not to make him do it. It may be replied that some meddlesome human writers, notably Boethius, have let this secret out. But in the intellectual climate which we have at last succeeded in producing throughout Western Europe, you needn't bother about that. 
Only the learned read old books, and we have now so dealt with the learned that they are of all men the least likely to acquire wisdom by doing so. We have done this by inculcating the historical point of view. The historical point of view, put briefly, means that when a learned man is presented with any statement in an ancient author, the one question he never asks is whether it is true. He asks, who influenced the ancient writer, and how far the statement is consistent with what he said in other books, and what phase in the writer's development, or in the general history of thought, it illustrates, and how it affected later writers, and how often it has been misunderstood, especially by the learned man's own colleagues, and what the general course of criticism on it has been for the last ten years, and what is the present state of the question. To regard the ancient writer as a possible source of knowledge, to anticipate that what he said could possibly modify your thoughts or your behavior, this would be rejected as unutterably simple-minded. And since we cannot deceive the whole human race all the time, it is most important thus to cut every generation off from all others. For where learning makes a free commerce between the ages, there is always the danger that the characteristic errors of one may be corrected by the characteristic truths of another. But thanks be to our father and the historical point of view, great scholars are now as little nourished by the past as the most ignorant mechanic who holds that history is bunk. Your affectionate uncle, Scrutate. Letter 28 My dear Wormwood, When I told you not to fill your letters with rubbish about the war, I meant, of course, that I did not want to have your rather infantile rhapsodies about the death of men and the destruction of cities. In so far as the war really concerns the spiritual state of the patient, I naturally want full reports. And on this aspect you seem singularly obtuse. Thus you tell me with glee that there is reason to expect heavy air raids on the town where the creature lives. This is a crying example of something I have complained about already, your readiness to forget the main point in your immediate enjoyment of human suffering. Do you not know that bombs kill men? Or do you not realize that the patient's death at this moment is precisely what we want to avoid? He has escaped the worldly friends with whom you tried to entangle him. He has fallen in love with a very Christian woman and is temporarily immune from your attacks on his chastity and the various methods of corrupting his spiritual life which we have been trying are so far unsuccessful. At the present moment, as the full impact of the war draws nearer and his worldly hopes take a proportionately lower place in his mind, full of his defense work, full of the girl, forced to attend to his neighbors more than he has ever done before and liking it more than he expected, taken out of himself, as the humans say, and daily increasing in conscious dependence on the enemy, he will almost certainly be lost to us if he is killed tonight. This is so obvious that I am ashamed to write it. I sometimes wonder if you young fiends are not kept out on temptation duty too long at a time, if you are not in some danger of becoming infected by the sentiments and values of the humans among whom you work. They, of course, do tend to regard death as the prime evil and survival as the greatest good, but that is because we have taught them to do so. Do not let us be infected by our own propaganda. I know it seems strange that your chief aim at the moment should be the very same thing for which the patient's lover and his mother are praying, namely his bodily safety. But so it is. You should be guarding him like the apple of your eye. If he dies now, you lose him. If he survives the war, there is always hope. The enemy guarded him from you through the first great wave of temptations, but if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself for your ally. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see, it is so hard for these creatures to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair hardly felt his pain, of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we created in their lives and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it. 
all this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. If, on the other hand, the middle years prove prosperous, our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work, build up in him a sense of being really at home in earth, which is just what we want. You will notice that the young are generally less unwilling to die than the middle-aged and the old. The truth is that the enemy, having oddly destined these mere animals to life in his own eternal world, has guarded them pretty effectively from the danger of feeling at home anywhere else. That is why we must often wish long life to our patients. Seventy years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unraveling their souls from heaven and building up a firm attachment to the earth. While they are young, we find them always shooting off at a tangent. Even if we contrive to keep them ignorant of explicit religion, the incalculable winds of fantasy and music and poetry, the mere face of a girl, the song of a bird, or the sight of a horizon, are always blowing our whole structure away. They will not apply themselves steadily to worldly advancement, prudent connections, and the policy of safety first. So inveterate is their appetite for heaven that our best method at this stage of attaching them to earth is to make them believe that earth can be turned into heaven at some future date by politics or eugenics or science or psychology or whatnot. Real worldliness is a work of time, assisted of course by pride, for which we teach them to describe the creeping death as good sense or maturity or experience. Experience, in the peculiar sense we teach them to give it, is, by the by, a most useful word. A great human philosopher nearly let our secret out when he said that, where virtue is concerned, experience is the mother of illusion. But thanks to a change in fashion, and also, of course, to the historical point of view, we have largely rendered his book innocuous. How valuable time is to us may be gauged by the fact that the enemy allows us so little of it. The majority of the human race dies in infancy. Of the survivors, a good many die in youth. It is obvious that to him, human birth is important chiefly as the qualification for human death, and death solely as the gate to that other kind of life. We are allowed to work only on a selected minority of the race, for what humans call a normal life is the exception. Apparently he wants some, but only a very few, of the human animals with which he is peopling heaven to have had the experience of resisting us through an earthly life of sixty or seventy years. Well, there is our opportunity. The smaller it is, the better we must use it. Whatever you do, keep your patient as safe as you possibly can. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape.